Grid Kids. Hey y'all, welcome to episode 15 of the Grid Kids podcast. I'm your host, Nick Semrod, and as always, I'd like to start by shouting out our sponsor, Spectrasonics. During times like these that are full of emotional weight, of stress, and overall weirdness, any software that can make my life easier is getting a gold star from me. And Spectrasonics is exactly that. They make recording an idea so quick and so easy that all I really have to do is sit down in front of my computer and I'm ready to go. These cats make Omnisphere, Stylus RMX, Keyscape, and Trillion. Actually, they just released an update for Trillion that makes it even more killing. So head over to spectrosonics.net today and check them out. All right, y'all, for this episode, I finally got to interview one of the players who has been the biggest influence on my playing. I heard about this guy right when I moved to New York about nine years ago and was instantly blown away by his feel, his choices, his musicality, and the fact that no one else really sounds like him. He's played and recorded with everyone from Bilal to Nick Hakim to Michel and Degiocello, basically everyone that I'm super obsessed with. We did this interview over my Twitch stream originally, but it was so rad that I decided to release it to the masses. Our guest for this episode is the one and only Mr. Jake Sherman, and here is our interview. Enjoy. Dude, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on this. Dude, cool. of course. I'm hyped. We we finally get to do this. I think I've I've been like a super fan of yours for like 45 years. We're <laughs> also friends, but we've never really done shit together until recently. Where, yeah. Uh, there was some tune where you hit me up and said, record random parts. And then I just sent you some like random idea and you made the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. About well, the idea happened to be perfect that you sent me. Dude, it was so it was so rad, and I like I've listened to so much of your your changes. I don't know if anyone knows this exists, or if you even want people to know that this exists. Uh-oh. <laughs> but there's a video of you on YouTube that's it's like a hymn expo. Yes, and there's like three about. people playing, and I th- I feel like. Rashad McPherson, who's from Nebraska, I think may actually be one of them. But you're in the middle of it. And I remember watching, like, when I first started getting into gospel music, I was, like, diving into, like, learning hymns and learning reharms and all that shit. And your version of Going Up Yonder came up. And I just remember being, like, violently fascinated with it because it (laughs) it was so churchy but it didn't have all of like the caveats that sometimes come with churchy, yep. which is things like time. <laughs> hmm. uh, yeah, like it had good time and like the changes were so like musical without being show offy, I guess. Um, and I was just fascinated by it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell everyone on here to like look that up. Maybe I'll put the link up at some point, but it's like a master class in like how to be rhythmic, how to sound like you're 65 on oh. the piano in the church. <laughs> That's the goal, always. What What was that for? Was it something specific? I think Alan Merville was making that. Do you know him? Hmm. 
I know the name. He did that thing that Corey just did, that uh, that masterclass. He's like the oh, yeah. guy in charge of that. But he's a yeah. great, amazing pianist who was at Berkeley at the time. Okay. I think he was in charge of heading that thing, and it was just uh, some people playing gospel songs. <laughs> Dude, it was it was just so fucking rad. Oh, thanks. It was just so locked, man. And So, like, something that fascinates me, and you and I, just to give everyone context, like, you and I are homies. We text all the time about random shit, like random sounds, random drills. But I don't know that I've ever asked you about like what you did to work on that kind of thing. And and I feel like you can tell when someone has put hours into metronome work. Like it's just a very specific sound that comes with it. Like was there kind of a broad array of shit that you did to work on that? Like when you were in super shed mode or hmm. did it just kind of come naturally? That's a good question. Um, and that is very nice coming from you because you you're you have the metronome in you. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, when I was at New School, the thing that that I did that really changed everything was study with Ari Honig, who's a, oh, a yeah. jazz drummer who mm-hmm. plays uh, the most crazy crazy metric modulation stuff. Mm-hmm. And he had me sing melodies and clap on different beats, which I think is similar to <laughs> an exercise that you're that you do. Like you yeah. you do what having the metronome move like so that you're playing every the metronome's playing every beat and every offbeat and you slowly mm-hmm. go so it's sort yeah. of like that but you're clapping and you're singing melodies um it's i mean the the concept is simple but like mm-hmm. the things that you clap get harder and harder yeah and uh that was when sort of things started to get into place which actually that was after oh no that was that was before berkeley so yeah also it was the first time that i studied with someone who said your time is bad and um <laughs> that's like so necessary to to have people in your corner who are willing to tell you when you're not good. Hopefully they hopefully he did it lovingly. <laughs> well, it came from a loving place. It hurt a lot at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But like that was probably the most influential lesson I've ever had because he was honest. Yeah. He's I think he said the words he said were, "Well, that was a lot of things, but it wasn't swinging." <laughs> <laughs> So, of course, I wanted to quit right there because, like, being super young, going into that lesson, I was like, all right, I'm going to, like, get the Ari Honig gig from this lesson. I'm going to just, like, show that I'm the man. Yeah. yeah. But that's, for one thing, that's never the reason to take a lesson. Oh, dude. Um, I love that. So, yeah. From there, I studied with him for, like, two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just focused on that kind of thing. That's so killing. Another thing we did, he made me get a ride cymbal and just play quarter notes mm. with uh with like the jazz that I love like swinging mm-hmm. 60s jazz and just play quarter notes actually he wanted me to do it on one piano key just play a note over and over again but I tried it and it was so boring it, <laughs> I just it was so lame it sounded so bad that I couldn't get anywhere with it but then I started playing it on a ride cymbal and after 3 minutes of that or so you start to really hone in on like are you ahead or behind mm-hmm. or on? Like you can really hear whether it's a flam or whether it's not. Mm-hmm. And after about six minutes, you're like so exhausted because mm-hmm. like the, the mental focus that it takes is crazy. Yeah. Um, so I did that every day for a while. And and you, you were just playing the right symbol. You weren't like doing that and playing some, like a line or something. It was just... Like, just the right symbol and just really <laughs> focusing on exactly where my right symbol was based, mm-hmm. you know, versus what I was hearing in my headphones. That's so heavy. Um, so heavy. And not ting, ting, to ting, just ting, ting, ting. Yeah. 
Yeah. Just quarter notes. I love that. Um, it's also, it's so hard not to play ting, ting, to ting or play some kind of rhythm that's not quarter notes. It's like, yeah. it takes, it's just so hard to not get bored. I mean, that's, that's such a deep part of that shed is it's like, it's almost like a stoic practice of, you know, you're, you're in this boat and you don't like what's happening, but there's something to learn from it. And mm-hmm. then eventually you get to a spot where like the boredom becomes secondary and you can just focus on the thing you're getting. Yes, um, totally. Like I, I noticed a ton. I used to do, I, I teach all my students like this four two one exercise where you just focus on playing, you know, I think I've even done it in here before, but you play like on the beat four times, on the E four times, and four times, up four times, and then you switch it twice, switch it to once. So it's like kind of this bass drill, which already it's like learning the pattern is is interesting and kind of hard, but then you start throwing other shit underneath it. Mm-hmm. Like you take your left hand and play a bass line underneath it, or you comp that rhythm and then you solo over it or something like that. Mm. And, you know, the rhythm itself is boring. It's just a boring fucking rhythm, but right. then you start hearing it or feeling how your body reacts to like the different things that you put under it. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very like meditative almost where it's like, it, it's just an interesting learning process. You know? Yeah, definitely. Something that trips me up is that unlike, you know, like if you, if you learn a new chord, I feel like you just know, it's like you come out of it with a very tangible piece of information. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I have this chord. I can, you know, maybe I don't know all the places I can throw it, but I have a chord. Or like, you know, if you do solo practice, you can like feel your chops get a little better. Mm -hmm. Did you ever notice like with rhythm study, how you feel something, but the payoff doesn't seem as obvious right away? Like, like, did you notice that or or am I not? Yeah, that's (laughs) why it's so much harder because there's not the instant gratification. And I think you don't really notice until you're playing with other people. Yes, yes, um, yeah. Like you can, you'll get lost less. That's a big thing. That was the biggest thing with the clapping on different beats. <laughs> like that was the first time when he made me clap on dotted quarters. Mm-hmm. That was the first time that I realized what it was when jazz drummers do the thing where it's like, I'm just going to sing some drums right now. Ting, 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 and I would get lost every every single time. And I was aware of that thing since middle school or whatever. Like when I first started playing with people, yeah, drummers were doing that and I would get lost. And I would ask teachers about it and they would always have this sort of like abstract response about it. Like I remember one guy at NEC who was a great drummer and teacher mm-hmm. was like, well, it's like if you're in a movie and you you this other scene comes on and you can either go towards that other scene or you can decide to go back to the scene you're on and and uh like people would answer it like that and (laughs) it was just like not i just needed some very specific like well they're playing dotted quarters over quarter notes so the quarter (laughs) note becomes dotted quarter note so here's how you do it and it took me until this lesson when i was 19 so maybe like six years of not knowing it before someone could just say this is what it is and that's when i stopped getting lost that's such an old jazzer thing to say. Totally. Like, yeah. <laughs> like they want to, I feel like some of those cats, like they know what it is, but they get bored by the easy answer. And so <laughs> they try and make it like a deeper story. Like my version of that, the dude that taught me was always saying like, yeah, bro, it's just two worlds. And like, you, yeah, know, you, can, exactly. live in, you can live in another world and still be in this one. You know, dreamers do it all the time. It's like, <laughs> dude, shut up. Just tell me. <laughs> 
Which makes sense. Like, it's not wrong, you know? Yeah. Part of it is because they've known it for so long that they forget that, like, there's so many chiller ways to get there before you're ready to talk about different worlds. Dude, and that's... I think there's a lesson in... There's a lesson in that for educators as well. Definitely. Because I, I feel like I find myself doing that shit with harmony. Mm. Like you try and talk about like a reharm or something and you're like, in reality, you can play anything, you know, which is <laughs> like, it's true. But like, if you tell that to someone who doesn't know how to paint within the lines yet, mm-hmm. they're just going to be like, uh, <laughs> where do I start? Yeah. It's definitely bad to give a student too much information. Yeah. Jesus. I, and I would imagine like you learning that while you're 19 Especially because you were you were in Berkeley at the time, right? This was at New School before I oh, went New to School. Berkeley. Okay, yeah. so like if you're well, I mean even more so. Like you're at New School, you're probably around a bunch of drummers who are also discovering that shit at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so I would imagine that you, it didn't shock you as much as a bunch of other keyboard players who were around because they don't get taught that. You know, like at least I didn't when I was twenty. <laughs> right. I mean, it shocked me a lot. Because yeah. it always just felt like something completely different. Like I didn't get that it was even on it related to the first tempo. It just sounded like like they went to a new tempo. Like I couldn't <laughs> feel the first one at all, you know? So it was huge. Oh yikes. I can't even imagine. Um okay, so you went to you went to new school for a couple of years, then went to Berkeley. Is that how it worked? Right. But I'm okay. from Boston, so I did it in a weird order. Word. Okay. Um so how was your like what was your intro into, like, I know a little bit about your history, but I, I kind of met you when you were already in New York and working a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was your intro into, like, gig life? Like, who was the first people who you kind of, like, started going out with? Um, well, in Boston, where I grew up, before I went to new school, so this was starting at age, like, 14 or 15, I started playing at Wally's, um, which is a legendary jazz club. Um eventually with Jason Palmer, who's an amazing trumpet player. And he's had that gig for a really long time. And it's, he sort of uses it to like bring up new people. Oh, where? Um, young, young kids basically. Yeah. And so his band changes every few years as new, new faces come into Berkeley or to Boston. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I started that when I was really young, um, 15 or so. And it was like my first real gig, you know, like gig where it was uh, regular, you know, every mm-hmm. week, and uh, the music was hard, really hard. Were you, you um, were learning tunes for it, like tune tunes? Yeah, there was, like, he would call tunes, and he would also bring in originals that were just really insane, usually weird time signature stuff, which was, this was before the Ari Honig lesson, so <laughs> that would, you know, there was plenty of getting lost. Yeah. But just having a space to play for, like, four hours every yeah. week is so important playing with people you said you were super young playing there yeah like 15s when i started that's fucking crazy and it was like you know it's a bar so that's cool <laughs> that always feels cool um for a while i was playing the early set too with a different band it was it was actually fridays and saturdays and i was playing uh the early set from six to eight and then jason's set was nine to like one or something oh wow <laughs> so it was just like all day yeah for two days in a row and uh, yeah, that's sort of like a lot of what raised me, I guess, on playing jazz. Sure, yeah. Was it a situation where they were just pushing you on the gig or like did you have relationships with these people kind of outside of it too where they would push you on the side as well? Um, push me like get me better? Yeah, I mean like uh, I'm just curious because I, I see sometimes like 
people who are young and burning it's like they're they're very blessed to have like not only a gig to try and try shit out on but like mm-hmm. some sort of like community around that yeah i would say there was a community around wallies for sure a lot of people would come and sit in it wasn't like a very closed thing it was like everyone at berkeley would would come oh amazing so Jam. it was really a great experience i i would imagine there's fucking burners around there then because that was yeah oh my god like what was that era i'm trying to even think who i know from that era was was yuki around then yuki was there yeah he was uh more doing like the like r&b or funk nights which uh i didn't experience as much as i should have like looking back on that time i should have been at that at the r&b night which was wednesday (laughs) i think every week just watching yuki but uh yeah that would have been quite the education and Jeff Lockhart is in the R&B one that Wednesday night. Okay. Um, I remember the craziest st- stuff I heard was Aaron Burnett. Do you know him? That sounds super familiar. Saxophone player who lives in New York now. But okay. yeah, he was, you know, young Coltrane and he would come in and play like a 15 minute solo on some <laughs> song and then walk out. And it was always like, I didn't know how to comp for it because it was just way over my head in every way, <laughs> yeah. rhythmically and harmonically. Yeah. Um, were you playing but organ or was it everything? It was Rhodes. Um, so once in a while, I would bring the organ later on. I did bring the organ there sometimes, but it's like Wait, this tiny club. Bring yes, the I, organ? So like, <laughs> yes. I had a, a chopped organ, um, which would fit in the back of a, my parents' Subaru <laughs> with pedals. Like the whole deal would fit in there, Leslie and everything. So yeah, I would bring that once in a while. But the, the club fits like 60 people tops. Okay. It's like... A, it's like a long room. Yeah. That's it, you know. So like it's sort of insane to have an organ in there. It's like a little stage that can fit like three people on it. And you have to load from the front probably. Um either the front or the back has like a fire escape type okay. thing. So I would bring the roads up the fire escape. Um but the organ <laughs> it was not a vibe to bring the organ up there. Dude, that's some <laughs> that's some young people shit. Totally. I can't imagine doing it now. I think once you hit like 28, like parts of your body go like, all right. <laughs> yeah. I brought the organ so many places as a kid. And I'm also really grateful for, you know, the privilege to have one and be able to bring it around. Yeah. Um, because that, you know, getting to practice it on gigs is, I feel like, what separates me from a lot of people who came to the organ later, like in a practice room. Mm-hmm. Dude, and that's, you know, I think I think all this stuff, too, is like just further evidence of like how important the, the community aspect of like youth and upbringing, you know, around music is like, mm-hmm. I've, I'm sure you've heard me like rail on college music education a ton, especially on I haven't really, but I that's <laughs> great. Do it. <laughs> like not not only on my Twitch, but on my podcast, I feel like that's just part of it's it's always like mentioned in the liner notes of like tear apart music school. But yeah. <laughs> um the thing about it that I really, really dig and that I do think is maybe worth the money. I'm gonna say maybe with like a bunch of ellipses behind mm-hmm. it. <clears throat> um but it it is that community aspect of you know you're you're around a bunch of other people who are all building and around a bunch of other like you're i mean i would imagine even keyboard wise like i mean yuki's one name but i I would imagine there's probably five six other cats who are around you who are just doing way different shit Mm -hmm. and so you're you know you're you're around that and that's that's something that's not as easy to simulate right so the best idea is to just hang around the music schools not pay for them 
and meet all the people. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the vibe. I, dude, do you know you know Corey Bernhard, right? Yeah. I feel mm-hmm. like he mentioned, I could be totally wrong, and I'm sorry if I'm misquoting you, Corey, if you ever hear this, but I feel like he mentioned something about that where I think he was like from around Boston as well. I think he went to music school, but he mentioned to me like, yeah, man, all the all the shit came from just like hanging around Berkeley, even though I didn't go there. Did he not go? Oh, I thought I think he, he went to, is there a Harvard in Boston? Oh, that's right. Yes, I there is a Harvard in Harvard. Boston. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he, um, would, that's you know, right. he was just a... Around well, he was in the Wally scene too before a little before my time, but he Where? was okay. Um, yeah, he was the Funk Night guy. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, dude, he he's who I got my church gig from. Oh, crazy! Like my my entrance into church music was I think he had started doing the Bilal gig mm-hmm. and just not getting home in time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, all right, all right. Well, he's who I got the Bilal gig from. So okay, so you played after him. Yes. Word. Okay. Yeah. So he's given us both great gigs. That's so killing. So so was Bilal your first like tour tour or was there someone before that who you went out with? Yes. I had played uh, with people my own age. You know, mm-hmm. I played with Nick Hakim who was starting to do Word. things around that time. Okay. And uh, Gabriel Garzon Montano. Yes. But, you know, it was a little bit different to play with Bilal because yeah. it was <laughs> more like business happening and yeah. like pro things. Mm-hmm. With that gig, you know, what did you what did you get from that? Because I I know like a lot of people's first touring experiences kind of opens their eyes to not only just like a lot of the things about touring that you don't hear about, you know, regarding like rest and like sleep um, and preparation and all that kind of stuff. But I would imagine his was probably even a bit more unique just because he's such a free spirited dude like. What did you tell me a little bit about your experience in that situation? Yeah, probably the biggest thing I learned was the intense amount of preparation that mm-hmm. it takes, especially actually in that setting, because similar to what we were talking about before, they were just like, oh, yeah, just like come and we'll play the songs. It will be chill. <laughs> you know, there wasn't there wasn't like with many touring gigs. It's like, here's exactly the songs. Here's exactly the parts. We are also made the sounds for you. And like, here's the click track yep. and here's the count offs in the click track. So you're going to hear keys, two, <laughs> three, four, and then you play it. But this is just uh, like, they didn't have a set list, yeah. you know, and he's released a lot of music. Oh my so God. Um, I eventually got a rough outline of like some songs they had been playing from Yuki. Mm-hmm. He sent me that. Like some of them, they were playing with different forms than they had on the record or whatever. So I just listened to all of them. This was also the first time I was really using sounds because I wasn't like a synth person. I just mm-hmm. played organ and piano. So I got main stage, which is like sort of, I guess, the predecessor to Ableton. It's like oh, the way yes. to use Logic uh, live. The pictures were beautiful. <laughs> yeah. They probably took up way too much computer space, the pictures, mm-hmm. because that thing would freeze all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I just listened to all the songs and tried to make the sounds from the record like in main stage um i had like a probably a month where i knew the gig was coming so i had some time but that just so much time like so much stuff to do there's just so much stuff to do there's so there was probably like 25 or 30 songs that i narrowed it down to as like these are the big better know these like don't don't be fucking up don't have them call this and be like uh because like that's the kind of gig it's not like jazz where you can say I don't know that one. Let's do a different one. It's <laughs> yeah. like the song's already started. 
yeah, <laughs> by the time you figure out. And singing yeah. it. Right and away. there's people there who mm-hmm. all of the people know the song because they grew up <laughs> with the song. Um, it's actually sort of like church in that way. Like yeah. everyone, like I'm the only one who's never heard the song before. Oh my um, God. <laughs> but so um, much anxiety just came up. Like, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I made the sounds as best I could. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about like figuring out your rig. You have to like figure out what sounds you need and how, how you're going to be able to have them on every gig. Because like, mm-hmm. if you're getting backline, if you've made sounds on a motif, how are you going to get them to the next motif? Oh yeah. Yep. That stuff. Um, is that what you were using? Was well, I was sort of convinced that I needed a motif because that's yeah. what like the gig had been using. I think yeah. I'm not sure if Yuki had that, but Corey definitely had that. Mm-hmm. So the rig was a Rhodes, a, a motif, a fake organ, like a, a whatever they had, some sort of which would XK change. Yeah, usually soul. like usually like Roland VK8 or something yeah. or pre XK, mm-hmm. um, and then the MIDI keyboard and. Over the course of like three or four years of doing it, I finally learned that the motif was not the vibe. And I was ended up <laughs> like I'd made all these sounds on it and they were always like cringy. And yeah. by the end, I was just using it for piano. And then I realized that like, do I really need this whole other keyboard for piano? Maybe mm. I could play the whole thing on Rhodes. Um, I was just like towards the beginning of the gig, I was really trying to make everything sound just like the record. And by the end, I realized people are just trying to jam and play the songs. Yeah. Um, so I could play piano on Rhodes. But anyway, back to the beginning. Uh, the main stage thing. So that was the biggest thing. Learning all the songs, learning the parts, and then figuring out which parts were really important. That was something. like mm. Because basically there's bass, drums, and guitar, and they're going to play the, the sounds that those instruments make and no other sounds. So yeah. everything else is up to the keyboard player. And there's not like aux keys or whatever. You know this situation. There's yeah. one keyboard player and you have to do like Eight the parts. pad and the bells and the mm-hmm. the lead. So lots of learning about like splits um, and how to how to like memorize the split so you know where it is. And mm, Jesus, dude. This is like the ultimate like touring intro gig. <laughs> yeah. Like literally everything you could ever have to deal with, it sounds like right. you dealt with immediately. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So it just came down to playing the songs over and over again by myself with the YouTube videos or whatever mm. um, and like not having anything be up to chance going yeah. to the first gig and being like okay I know all these really well and my questions I have them written down like in this song is there a double chorus here you mm-hmm. know like just really being ready for those things so then we played the first gig there was no rehearsal um, I just showed up it was well no I didn't show up I showed up at the breeding ground which is run by Tariq Khan and Nikki yes. Um, oh, yes. and we drove to South Carolina for the first gig. So we drove like, oh, you drove. uh, <laughs> you know, that, how that goes. We drove overnight. Oh yeah. What was it? I guess we drove and got there super late at night, something like that, but Oof. you know how it is. So set up for the first gig and, uh, they launched into a song and I had like all the sounds ready and I did like the string thing exactly how it was on the record. And I looked over and Tone, the bass player, was had his middle fingers up at me, like, uh, like, hey, you know all the parts. Um, <laughs> so it was good to go from there. Uh, was he MDing? Tone, Tone Whitfield, right? Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, basically he's the MD. The way he yeah. plays bass is is MD. You know, okay. like he's totally dictating um, the energy yeah. by how he plays bass. So he doesn't usually say that much about 
how the song should go, but he's the de facto MB for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's it's it's such a good, again, there's lessons in that too, just in terms of like how, like I would imagine that that set like a mental precedent for you. I mean, and maybe this was set before with the, uh, the gigs you were doing when you were younger, but just having that like, it's almost like a fear of like, oh shit, this is a big gig. I have to have all this stuff and I have to be ready for every situation. Definitely. And then you do it and you you get the payoff of like, okay, cool. Now that I have all this stuff, like no one is worried about me. I'm not worried, you know, I'm mitigating or minimizing like all, not all the stress, but like a good portion of it. And then you just can't not do that after that. It's like every gig you get. For sure. You know? Yeah. That first gig was so good. Um, I was lucky, like I was relaxed because all that preparation had gone into it. And then I was like, well, I know exactly what I'm going to do, basically. <laughs> yeah. um, and I was able to actually like improvise with it because I had practiced so much with the sounds and stuff. I knew where the splits were that I could like go with the flow mm, rather, than, mm. rather than be like half on the computer, like pulling something up or whatever, you know? Yeah, it's, it's the staring at sheet music syndrome. Mm-hmm. Like if you kind of know it, you're still rela- like you don't know. You have it. all this mental <laughs> energy that it's like going somewhere else that could have mm-hmm. been used for musicality or like right. foresight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think the goal is to play every gig like a jazz gig, like just that you're very present and anything can happen, mm-hmm. and uh, you're just like at the piano. It should mm-hmm. feel like you're at the piano, even if you have a lot of synths. Yeah, you shouldn't be worried about confusion about what octave the synth is in or something like you just have to know that stuff already dude it, it takes you out so quickly too i mean like this is something that i i wish i would have learned like it, it didn't really fuck me up early on but uh it could have fucked me up even less if someone just would have mentioned this like how important the gear stuff is mm. you know like like even a split like that could ruin a whole show in the same way as like a quarterback throwing an interception. I've had it happen. <laughs> Actually, on the Nick Hakeem tiny desk, oh, uh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I usually set up with the MIDI keyboard on top of the whirly. And on that one, there was a piano instead of a whirly. So I had to put the MIDI keyboard over here and play like oh, this. My God. And I lost track of where the octaves were. So I played this like really loud, like something in the wrong <laughs> octave and the wrong sound. And it was like basically like a saxophone patch that was high. When it yes. was supposed to be like a low string or something. Yes. And uh, <laughs> it was like a very crazy sound. And then uh, luckily, I went to the audio guy right after and I said, there's this one moment I really need you to just mute. Please just mute it. And he did. <laughs> so you can't hear it in the tiny desk now. Oh, it, I, I really hope that, it, like, you probably know the exact moment it happened. Like, I wonder if your face is catchable. <laughs> I wonder. I don't think so. I think I was so mortified that I was just, I had a straight face. You can sort of hear it. It was so loud that you can hear it in the guitar mic on the other side (laughs) of the room, but it it doesn't sound so horrid. Oh, dude, that's my favorite (laughs) shit. My favorite shit is seeing if you can identify those moments in live videos because they're they're in every one of them. Like every fucking, like I did, I did uh, one of those VF jams things. And of course it was the one, like the one that featured me that I fucked up on, but <laughs> I just missed an outro cue, like Sput, uh, Sput Seawright was MDing it and he did some hand thing that I just didn't look at because I was too mm-hmm. worried about, you know, playing as many notes as I possibly could. <laughs> and he cued an outro and so I just landed on this huge note that had like nothing to do with the change. Uh-huh. And luckily they faded it in the video, but you can see me be like, <laughs> you can just see me absolutely react to it 
Yeah. And it looks like out of context, it's super weird. It's like, wait, why? Because you can't s- hear it. You didn't yeah. play any, <laughs> just like silence. And you're well, like, I, I think they put like another note. I think Spot played like the very last note or something, put it in. But the reason it looks weird is because there's no way I should be that shocked by the note that I played. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> it's like, why is he why, why is he so hyped right there? And you, you catch it every time. Like, I feel like I've caught that in, like, snarky puppy videos or, like, even harder shit, like, tool live performances. It's like, there's something in there that wasn't correct there. So, when, like, okay, so you've played, I mean, you've played with a shit ton of people. You've played with Michelle mm-hmm. and Deggy Ocello, who's, like, my, she's the goddess of all goddesses. Agreed. Um, Emily King, Nick Hakim, who played with Gabe, Gabe Garza Montano, which mm-hmm. I also played on. We played on the same tour. We just played different. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we played different dates. I think I did the first. You did the first You couldn't half. do the first three weeks or something like that. Right. And so I um, subbed for you, and it was fabulous. That must have been because of Blau. Probably, um, yeah. And um, you had a much harder job because that was the first huge tour that Gabe had done. And you were, you guys were like figuring it out on the spot, right? <laughs> yeah, that tour it was like playing playing shit live, you know, with a band for the first time in that scenario. Playing shit live in arenas, like because he was open you know, with in ears. Yeah, yeah. And then cringy, not cringy, but the part that made that tour tough was two things. First, like, so we we're opening up for Lenny Kravitz. Those of you who uh, we should provide context for, um, and Mr. Kravitz kept getting sick on the tour. I don't know if he was getting sick during your half, but Oh, they were canceling shows, right? No, yeah. he was, he, that didn't happen for my half. Yeah, the first half, I think they canceled like three shows. So there was all these situations where we would like build up momentum mm-hmm. and then not have it for like a week or something right. like that. I know Armand was like changing the track up every time and you were like excited to hear the new track. Yeah, and then in the middle of it, I got super sick. Oh, damn. Yeah, there was like a situation in Russia where I think it was like the milk was unpasteurized there or something. And so I drank it and it just totally effed me. Mm -hmm. I was sitting on the floor of the train from Moscow to St. Petersburg. Oh, no. It was a mess. Um, Okay, so yeah, you've done all those things. And, you know, as of maybe the last like four or five years, maybe you've been kind of not kind of you've been really diving into like your career as a songwriter as a singer you know as i mean i i'm sure you're still doing side work but it seems like your priority has been like your voice like what what prompted that that's a good question yeah uh it's definitely gone more towards that direction i'm not sure if there was a single thing i was just realizing that like this is what i really want to do my own songs my own writing and uh there's always going to be an excuse to not do it and at some point I have to just prioritize it because there's always going to be gigs and stuff. Well, I guess I'm lucky to say that, but so far there's always been some kind of thing that's taken me away from it. It's been like, okay, well, this month I can't really work on it because I have to do this other thing as well as I can. You know, that just keeps happening. And then you regret it at the end in a certain way because you didn't give yourself a chance. Yeah. Did you have any work that you were offered like while you were making that decision that you had to just be like nope sorry but you like hated saying that hmm good uh let's see i've definitely been saying no more yeah um just really being honest like for sideman stuff basically i just i just say yes to the things that i feel are part of me 
like sure. Nick and and others that you mentioned. But most other sideman gigs now, I try not to do unless mm-hmm. like unless the money is just too crazy or something like that. But yeah, I just uh, it's just way more valuable to be doing my own thing yeah. for the most part when I can at this point. And the budget situation is so different because usually it's it's like okay, I'm funding my own thing, so there's way more like. I have to outweigh the negative income, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. Um, like, d- does that ever factor in? Like, do you get to the point where you're like, oh, fuck, I'm, I'm like not making enough money. I should do more side guy stuff. Or did you just like devote and you're like, I'm just going to figure it out and I'll make money because I chose to figure it out. Well, I've been lucky to be teaching a lot more. Mm, and uh, so that's sort of what's, what's fixed it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I teach lessons, guys. Yeah. You all, you all should definitely... I think we have a few people in the room who have studied with both you and I, actually. <laughs> cool. Yeah, like I've realized lately that there's just so much preparation involved in having an actual gig, mm. like that it's it barely is ever like financially viable, really, if you factor in mm. like mm-hmm. it's it takes so much preparation, so many hours of work to really play the gig at the level that you need to, yeah. meaning like you know every song perfectly like you wrote it. You know, you've made all the sounds, you have everything there. So when I play a gig, I want it to be at that level yeah. um, for someone else. And if I feel like I'm not going to be able to do that because I'm not getting paid enough or like there's not enough time to do it or maybe like the infrastructure around it isn't set up so that mm-hmm. the gig can be great, mm-hmm. then it's it's a waste. Yeah, that's such an interesting, interesting point because... I- I've run into this in teaching a lot and people who are kind of like still forming their careers and trying to figure out what to do. I feel like at some point in my life, and you, you probably, it seems like you're having this, this same vibe too. It, it seems very clear that you need to start doing the, the cost benefit analysis right. of yeah. like, okay, how many hours is this taking me? What's the travel, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I always feel weird suggesting that to younger musicians because mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have been able to convince early Nick career of that. Totally. Yeah. It's definitely a thing you have to transition into. Yeah. Like, because you always just have to put so much time in that at mm-hmm. the beginning, yeah. you're not going to make enough money to make it make sense theoretically, but it's the learning from that experience that gets you to the next level. Absolutely. Well, and it's, man, especially in like, in cities like you know you you and i were both new yorkers for a long time are you still technically a new yorker yeah i'm here you are okay yep i told people i was moving to la at one point and then i didn't do it but many people now think i live there you you sir you survived the onslaught of of new york (laughs) and lived to tell another day i did not i had to get (laughs) but yeah it's like in new york i remember specifically like i'd get offered something like a, a rockwood hit you know and it'd be like oh it pays 300 dollars, which like for a rockwood hit pretty good right yeah so definitely. on its core and then at some point you know i, I moved there when i was 27 or so and right. i think like right when i turned 30 i was like wait hold up let's let's really start doing the math and then like even just if it has let's say it has one rehearsal like without learning the music without the gig like just with traveling to the rehearsal and back to the gig and back, you're already at four hours. Mm-hmm. So now you're at 75 an hour, which is still pretty good. Right. And then like, let's say, okay, let's say there's 10 tunes. I would want to put four or five hours into 10 tunes just to be able to play the shit out of them. Yeah. So now you're at, now you're at eight, nine hours mm-hmm. and you have the rehearsal, which is probably 
three or four. And then you have the gig, which is like one. So you're at like, you know, 15, 16 hours of work if you're efficient as hell. If you can really learn 10 songs in four hours, which I can't. I, for one, it takes me a ton of time to learn songs if I really memorize them and really know, Mm. like, okay, the second verse has this little other thing. Mm. Like, that's the level you have to know it at, and it just takes so long that, like, you have to be so invested to get to Yes, yeah. Yeah. And then you add in, like, if there's programming, Mm -hmm. like, if there's synth programming, and then you add in, like, okay, now I have to, like, even life shit, like, okay, now I have to move an errand, or I have to cancel this (laughs) lesson, or I have to, like eat dinner quickly which you know it's like it's just all these things and and all of a sudden a $300 gig is paying you like 15 bucks an hour <laughs> right but maybe that gig leads to other gigs and yeah. like maybe you get seen on that gig and get an amazing gig from it or maybe yeah. you're now the keyboardist in that band and that <laughs> band is awesome yeah so you can't just fully do that yeah. analysis but there is something to that especially as we get older yeah, absolutely. And it's it's just so interesting because I, I I think even those things you can you can chalk those up to like okay, it pays this and I'm also investing blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um but I but I you know, I think that's a really important point. I mean, for for just younger players in general, it's like think think on a broader scale than just the gig. Like I personally wish I would have done that more hmm. younger. Because now it's so beneficial, you know, like I would imagine you and I both have just better energy levels because we're able to see something, quickly diagnose what it would cost and be like, Mm -hmm. "Ah, no, I'm right. But to go back to what you said earlier, when you're young, take every gig for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not that we're not young now, but there's a, you know, this was definitely a gradual transition. Sure. Yeah. And I'm really grateful that I spent countless hours playing working on gigs that didn't pay at the beginning. Yeah. There's the uh, there's the whole thing of the like a gig needs two out of three of these qualities to be worth it and it was like good good music, good you know, good musicians, good hang, good pay. And as long as you have two of those like you're cool. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a it's a decent rule cuz even even the wedding gigs that I said that I despised or you know, like seem like they weren't worth it now. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of those it was like just a it was a hang. Right. Like even if the music sucked, it was like, all right, it's such a good hang. And that shit's yeah. worth it too, because you learn you're you're practicing how to hang out with people. <laughs> how to be a person. Yeah, I, exactly. Yeah. Cause sometimes musicians don't we don't learn that until later. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was never really in the G B thing, but mm-hmm. looking back on it, I wish I had played bass or sang in a G B mm-hmm. band. I think that would have put me especially singing, if I had been like I was pretty I had just started singing around the time when I would have been trying to be in a GP band. Sure. But that would have been so amazing. It would have had some really shitty gigs, but eventually <laughs> I would have gotten so good at singing so fast from being thrown into it. The singing thing, I mean, not not to analyze the shit out of everything economically because that would definitely like drain the soul of an artist very quickly. Um, but the the GB situation, I feel like the the singing part, like obviously if you're trying to improve at singing, it's like you know fabulous experience. Mm-hmm. But it 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 doubles the amount of work you have to do because of the lyrics. Yeah, it's well, it's like lyrics and or learning harmonies and or like just paying attention to both those things at once. Right. Like I, but I, I yeah, feel I like just I told mean people I couldn't sing because of that. <laughs> Yeah, does everyone here know that Nick is an amazing singer? <laughs> Not true. They I've heard it. They don't know There's that. There's even a YouTube video of you <laughs> singing at church. 
my god. I hope it's lost forever. I hope no one sees that. <laughs> You're great. <laughs> I appreciate the compliment. I'm I'm scared to death of singing. Uh, well, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was so I was going to ask you this. Like, did did you notice a, a big difference in um, in kind of the vulnerability of like being a sideman versus being your own artist? Because you're you're definitely like as a side person, you're kind of hidden, or at least you can mm-hmm. be. You know, um, did that affect you at all when you kind of started doing more of your own thing? Um, I mean, it felt actually really natural for me to be. Mm. I've just always been a star. So, uh, <laughs> when I was out in the forefront, it just made sense. Uh, yeah. like, but I sort of started playing my own gigs before I could sing at all. Like right. basically like just throwing myself out there and hoping that the vulnerability of my like lyrics and performance would outweigh the fact that I was like, uh, straining and out of tune pretty much the entire time or like yelling because yeah. I couldn't hear myself cause I sang too soft and then I would yell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was the, a huge lesson to realize that realize how to sing softly, even if you can't hear yourself mm. rather than like, it's, it just, when you're a beginner singer, yeah, you have the tendency to like, okay, I can't hear myself. So I'll just sing louder, but actually like tone changes with volume. So sure. as soon as I go out of singing quietly, it sounds lame. It sounds like like just a different thing than what I'm trying to be. Yeah, I was just wondering if you if you noticed differences in the in the vulnerability part. And it, you know, you, you mentioned that it sounds it, it, it kind of seemed natural just to be like a front person. Did you feel natural also with the fact that you're putting out a product is very different than you just being in like a performance mode? Like, did that affect you at all? Well, I felt I felt like being able to control everything was good <laughs> like, mm, I guess I'm a control freak so uh, like you know having the songs be written the way I wanted and having the band play the songs and sure. like just playing the things that, that I believed in were usually more rewarding than sitting like playing a gig where maybe 80% of the songs I loved and 20% were like cringy to me but I had to still <laughs> play them you know I love that I feel like that would be a very interesting transition if you hadn't done that but it sounds like you, you had kind of been like in performance mode like even though you weren't necessarily making a career out of it, it seems like it probably helped like doing doing that even in your spare time shit like mm-hmm. that also i was really lucky to be given background vocal parts in bands before i started doing my own thing that helped with the arranging well it helped with just singing on a yeah. mic in front of people like yeah. it's just so different than singing at home like learning how to, how to hear yourself in the monitor, all those things. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that makes sense. Like I sang with Bilal. I sang background vocals in that band. Um, oh, amazing. Which is crazy. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was, it was with Micah Robinson, who's an amazing vocalist and especially an amazing background vocalist, like matching Bilal's tone exactly and stuff. Yeah. And Adam Jackson, you know him. Killing singer, yeah. Killing singer. So the three parts were me and those two. So Jesus, like dude. it sounded amazing even if I was out of tune because two out of three were like spot on and perfect. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that was like a really valuable experience to just be singing with great singers. Sure. So how, how does this tie into your, because you, you got deep into the vocoder hang for a minute. Mm-hmm. Not for a minute. I mean, for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I've noticed a lot of the times like, it seems like people who dive into vocoder are like 
doing it because they're not necessarily singers or they want to have like their own voice, but you have both of those. Like you have a great voice and a great vibe and you're also killing at the vocoder. Like why, why did you dive into that? Like what interested you about it? Um, well, I wanted to be able to sing what I could play, Hmm. you know, like I, I don't have the vocal ability to sing like runs or lines really like that, like really precise things with crazy harmony. Yeah. And, you know, I'd heard some music, especially Sunlight by Herbie. Do you know that album? Absolutely. Um, and I just wanted to be that. So that was it. <laughs> also, I got into it, like, before I was really singing. So it was really my only, like, vocal outlet for a while. And I, I know in diving into my own vocoder life, which I don't have figured out, that the tech angle was a fucking nightmare. I know you probably don't want to divulge all your secrets, but like, how did you figure out that whole process? Because it seems like it's a lot to make it work. Well, it's just like you're in a movie and you go down one road and you can either stay in that road or you can go to the other. <laughs> um, I mean, it's like anything. Like, it takes time and you have to like read the manual and shit. Yeah. And like yeah. constantly experiment and see what works and what doesn't. Sure. The big win for me was so the, the thing that I use has a synth in it and you can access it with a MIDI cable. Okay. That works way better than having the source be like actual audio Mm. because like after you play like two or three notes, if you play any more than two or three or even two notes, it sounds like distorted. Sure. But when you're going with MIDI, it's not reading the actual sound. It's just reading the notes that you play. So it's going to have like perfect. Amazing. Yeah. So you can play with infinite polyphony and it will work <laughs> so a lot of that shit ends up just being it, it's it's almost like there's probably only a certain amount of hardware pieces that can pull it off yes totally i yeah i'm not sure how many can but i think that's if you want to do chordal vocoder uh, yeah. midi cable is the way um there's that dude it's actually pretty simple with the montage has like a really you just plug a mic into it and it actually cool. works like pretty easily they have a, a pretty decent set of um, montages are a bit of a throwdown but i think the modi x i don't i should probably know this but i think the modi x has a, a input on the back cool well yeah if you're using a keyboard already and it has a vocoder built in that's sick because yeah. like basically i'm this is like a separate thing in yeah, my, yeah, yeah. in my settings and like i have to bring it's a pedal i use and i have to bring that separately and now i have it like just wired in so it's part of the thing sure. but it's an, definitely an extra piece yeah 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 and there's always with extra pieces there's always the risk of like something going awry which oh all the time that's (laughs) like probably what takes me longest in the sound check is like figuring that out oh my god yeah i i I know that from seeing um i got lucky enough to tour when i was playing with Corey this last touring thing like we did some gigs with the glassburr and terrace's terrace martin's like um r and r equals now or whatever it's called Mm -hmm. um and i got to see terrace martin's vocoder thing it's just a keyboard like you're just using a vocoder keyboard and it sounds fucking amazing right away is it old kind of yeah cool like it's like maybe 20 years old but it it just same joint just plugs a mic in and like super fucking fire i'd be interested in knowing what casey benjamin's thing is also that sounds super clean he seems to be like the pinnacle of like gear quality when it comes to that situation yeah um yeah so i you know i've noticed too and and people who have seen your stream also like um you're you're one of the rare like you have the trifecta where like you can write and you can produce and you can play 
Um, Thank you. A, where the fuck do you find time <laughs> to learn all of those things? And B, like, like when you're doing the production angle, like, do you do you ever have trouble like finding like a workflow? Like, did you have trouble when you were first started doing it, like figuring out the workflow situation, or did it just come naturally right away? Yeah, workflow is super hard, and I still don't really have one for drums or rhythm. Mm. That's why I'm I'm really lucky to be working with Abe in my band, Jake yeah. and Abe. We've been doing yes. a lot lately, and basically I can just not worry so much about the beat side of things, mm. and it just gets <laughs> solved perfectly every time. So does he? And he records all the stuff and does like the drum production on his end, right? Yeah, like well, lately we've been working like from opposite coasts, so that's how it usually. Yeah. But like when we were making the songs that are released, we were together the whole time. But you know, he just has those instincts that I have with harmony. He has them on yeah. rhythm, so it's and sounds, you know, rhythmic sounds. So that's one thing. If if you guys can find someone who compliments you and like can do the thing that is your weakness, that's yeah. where great collaborations lie. Dude, yeah. But to go back to the question, um, I think everything is informed by the writing. Um, mm. That's where it comes from first. And if you check out my stream, you'll see that like when I'm, I've been doing these productions that take like seven hours or something, like pretty long things. And sure. the first like three or four hours is the writing where I'm like getting super into the nitty gritty and, and working on like, like we were talking about before the second verse or whatever, just like little variations, like yeah. everything is already solved in my mind before I go sure. to the production. And some people have success with producing uh, like without having the song in their head, like just going to the computer and putting some stuff down and it, somehow a song comes out of it, but I've never been able to work like that. I have to write yeah. the entire song first on the keys and know it as if it's like a solo piano piece. Mm. And if I really am at that place, then the production is easy and fun because it's just like, oh, well, obviously this part needs this. Like it's yeah. the, the energy and the change in momentum of the song is like there already and I just have to orchestrate it. And if I haven't quite written the song yet, it never it never works. So you're always you're always in the write first, produce second. Like you don't you don't ever like write from a production angle. Never or with that stuff in mind. Okay. I mean that's yeah, that's probably a, a, a I've heard that mentioned about, you know, like great songwriters um, which of which you are one, but um, you know, I think about like like Beatles tunes and shit like that. It's like exactly. you know, even on on something like Sgt. Pepper, like there's so much heavy production and so much deep shit going on, but you can still take all those songs and just play them on piano, and they're still fabulous. And you can tell and that they like, were made like that, like they were written yeah. first. Yeah, for yeah, sure. and it's it's such a it's such a heavy experience. I mean, it just changes the quality of of the song so deeply. You know, and granted, there's been, there's great things that are, are Twitch is full of the the producer hang. I mean, there's people in this chat who are like fucking god level producers. Totally. And you know, like that, I feel like that's just an angle that I don't understand right. yet. But they're able to make sounds from that workflow. Often uh, they're making loops though, loops or beats yeah. that then yeah. people write to, which is which is awesome. But it's just a different thing than it's I know a very how to do. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, I find there's like there's too many options when you do it that way for me. Like, mm. oh, this is cool. Oh, this is cool too. Oh, all these sounds are so awesome. This synth has a thousand awesome sounds. But if the song's <laughs> yeah. if the song's done, then you're just like, 
well, this song, sound might be awesome, but it definitely is not for this song. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a great. That's a great point. I should probably try that one because I definitely get lost in the weeds. Like when I try and write, it's like I just go to a synth and sit there and be like, "What? No, no, what now?" <laughs> right. Um, and and I've noticed like you, you do something interesting with lyrics too, where you'll have it's almost like you have like like target lyrics. Well, you have like a really great line, and then you'll build other lines around it. Totally. Which which makes so much more sense to me, and I feel like is like antithetic, you know, or it's just the opposite of what a lot of people do because you hear so much of the tie-in between like the poetic approach of like, okay, I'm gonna write this poem or I'm gonna write this thing and then put a song to it, but like your thing makes so much sense to me because like you can have a really fucking powerful line and then just build context around that like you don't need to write it in order Mm -hmm. yeah definitely i guess i call it like the punchline. it's like a joke like you have to know where you're going and then yeah you just fit the other lines it's like it's like or like soloing over a chord change you have like your target place maybe you've already decided what you're going to play in the like the payoff chord and yeah, then you yeah. just have to like do <laughs> some bullshit chord. to get to the full, to, to the payoff chord. <laughs> That's all of my reharms is just <laughs> waiting for waiting for the payoff chord. Yeah. <laughs> so so let me ask you this too. Um, you know, especially like y- y- you and I dabble in a few of the same worlds. Like, and I'm just curious, like, how are you staying afloat during? all of this i mean this is a question i've asked to everybody during quarantine it's kind of an obvious question but i haven't gotten the same answer once and i'm fascinated by that mm-hmm. so like like what are you what are you doing to not only like stay sane mentally <laughs> but also to like still be an artist mm-hmm. during all of this yeah well so when the pandemic started uh i was just starting a tour for my album um i was four days into it and it was three months long and i mm. had put months of time into booking it and making it happen so that was a really big blow when on day four i had to cancel the whole thing um (laughs) so i went home uh to boston with my girlfriend and we uh we chilled i took Mm -hmm. a few days to just uh like come come to terms with the fact that all of that was just not coming back yeah and then i made another album basically in a week to cope with it which was an instrumental album um and that was the thing that really pulled me out of the, what could have been like a, a sad time. Mm. Um, that album is available, by the way. It's called You're a Dream. Uh, so I basically, I just, over the course of a couple of days, I sang a bunch of voice memos into the phone of just like the first melodies that would come to my head. And then I would orchestrate mm-hmm. them in little like one or two minute jams with yeah. some of the gear. Like I brought a couple of these keyboards to Boston and made oh, it the piano at home and those. Um, and actually, yeah, that was really therapeutic doing that, just like working on it a little every day and not caring too much. Like I hadn't, I didn't know it was an album. I was just like, okay, I have to create a lot right now or else sure. I'm going to be sad. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was what pulled me out. Um, and then monetarily, uh, teaching has been the main yeah. thing that's been happening with sporadic other gigs. Yeah. Are you, you're mainly doing like private, like one-on-one private study? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's the teaching thing to me is, is such a good way to fund yourself when you're, (laughs) when you're an artist, because I feel like, especially like in, in your boat, because you know, you're again, like could be killer side person, could be killer artist. Like you have all these things that you could be doing, but, but there's always that risk 
like especially during a, a situation like this where it, it becomes much easier to act out of a place of lack and act out of a you know a place of like oh shit I need the money so I'm just going to do right whatever you know and you know I'm I'm definitely not judging that because there's definitely been things that I have done during this pandemic that I probably wouldn't normally have done um, but but the teaching thing is is so you know it's so honest and it's so still impactful and like weirdly enough that hasn't left during all this totally you know, people like, still like want to learn yeah, people are still hungry, and I feel like almost more so. <laughs> right. Like, I don't know how the fuck they're paying for it. <laughs> but it's not I'm, my problem. Is, yeah, yeah, I'm super, <laughs> into, I'm super into however it's happening, it's happening. Um, have, you, have you done any, like, master class experiences or, like, group teaching sessions or anything? Um, not during this time. I did one mm. in, uh, in this little town in Germany on a day off of a tour um, mm -hmm. when I was working with Elise my former yeah. manager she got me a um this like thing at a college mm -hmm. and that was my one experience doing that and it went pretty well it's hard though yeah you have to you have to like really have a plan maybe like everything yeah. but especially like it's different than teaching one-on-one -on -one, but i definitely like to do more of that mm. i just don't have much experience that's something you do from time to time right I do yeah i do a little bit i i've done five i think this year i would i would love to do more, like I, honestly, I feel like I I almost have a harder time teaching the the one on one. Like I love teaching one on one, but I would rather teach a group because the message can be so broad. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you can go into like the last class I I taught. Interestingly enough, wasn't um, it wasn't even necessarily musicians. It was like an art, like artistic, wow. like a school of the arts situation. So that sounds harder to me. There's a yeah. There was a few musical theater people, a few like uh, uh, like photography people in there, a few filmmakers. Um, but the cool thing about that is like you can kind of throw out like a wide net. Mm -hmm. You know, I could I could be like, hey, here's some ways to adapt. Here's some things to think about. And then in a group situation, you have you know even if you only have eight people in a class, you have eight people who at least one of them is gonna give you some direction. Right. Whereas you know luckily in in like in private study it's like okay there's definitely the people who know what they want to learn but there's also the people who don't <laughs> right and those are the situations that i just get slaughtered in because i don't i'm like okay well we could try this but when thing. people have really different levels it's hard for me to know true. what to say yeah. i basically just go to the level that's highest and teach to that and have other people just not know what's happening <laughs> dude i i yeah i feel like um so that that's an interesting point because i've had that issue on twitch actually mm -hmm. like doing the teaching stuff on twitch um you know we'll get into rhythm study or we'll get into harmony or whatever but there's always like a part of me that feels guilty when someone is left out of the learning curve mm -hmm. and so then you have to like for me i actually go the other direction I have that's to, like, probably okay, better I, I mean it's it's more it's definitely more inclusive yeah um but the, I don't. Maybe the arrogant artist in me wants to teach the hardest shit I know, <laughs> <laughs> and so I've, I've definitely run into that. Um, yeah, I've been debating doing like group lessons on Zoom and shit like that because I've seen a few other musicians do that and it's worked out pretty well. Cool. I have like four or five or something like that. Um, so, so what's what's next on your docket? I know you have a few things you've been working on. <clears throat> the thing that we put out together. Um, yeah. And I'm curious as to what you're focusing on now. Well, um, 
I have a bunch of stuff that's finished, basically. I have another record that's done, and I have uh, Drake and Abe has a record that's pretty much done. But I don't think we're going to release that stuff until we can tour because uh-huh. a big part of our thing is playing live, and sure. uh, we want to be able to tour the record. So yeah. um, in the meantime, I'm doing a lot of Twitch streaming, and I've been producing music for other people on Twitch. That's basically what I'm doing on Twitch. You just did something with Jamie Lydell, right? Yeah. Amazing. That, that went really well, and so I sent it back to him and have been awaiting the, the vocals for the last couple months, so I'm just going to be yeah. patient. But that's how it goes, you know. <laughs> um, I'm really excited for that if it if it comes through eventually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just producing for, for people and seeing what comes of it. I think that's the main focus right now. I'm going to L.A. actually in a couple days for two weeks to work with Abe, so maybe we can hang out if there's hangouts allowed. I am super down. They don't allow them, but we do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's just how, just how it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what, tell, me, tell me what happened with the disclosure thing, because that thing looked incredible, and I'm a huge fan of theirs and yours, but I cool. didn't catch the context of it. All right, so they have this contest every week where they put out some stems on Discord, mm-hmm. and then you can like remix them or do whatever. So yeah. I've been doing it with Abe every week where we write a song basically on stream uh, and then submit it. So uh, we we got third place once, uh, but they had a great reaction from it and sort of that put us on their radar. And then we yeah. won it a different one. And then we're working on another one right now, which I'm going to be streaming right after this, by the way. Feeling. So feel free to join, guys. Hell yes. So that's been a good way to like force myself to write quickly you know, mm-hmm. because there's a deadline. The stems come out Friday and it's due uh, Sunday or something. Um, oh, shit. This week, like you can see them make it on the stream earlier. So I heard <sighs> them make it. So I like started writing the song beforehand, which I guess is cheating. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so we're trying to do that every week and just uh, cement ourselves into their content. Dude, that's so deep. And, and I would imagine, too, that that hang... It's like, you know, when they're getting stems and stuff like that, or when they're giving away stems, it's like a, a lot of their fans are probably making similar types of music that totally. they are. We're a very different vibe than which is, almost which is everyone killing. there. Yeah. Yeah. Like even, even strategically, it's like, I'm not coming from that angle. Right. And that's, dude, that's something like I really, I mean, not to enter and end this conversation with like severe ass kissing, but something that I've, I've loved about your, your playing and your personality is that there's always like something that isn't what the rest of the scene is doing and it's just it's very honest and i don't i don't know if it's on purpose or if you can even help it <laughs> yeah exactly um, it's it's not but i appreciate it's just that it's lot. just what you're doing and it's something like it's something that i think a lot of people should really pay attention to because you know everything you've gotten has been because people want to hire you not because they want to hire a version of of someone else mm-hmm. you know personally it took me a long time to make the choice to focus on trying to do that you know i was i mean i was trying to be yuki for a long time (laughs) well to to speak on that i definitely have spent tons of time trying to be versions of other things and i think that's where it comes from just having a lot Mm of versions of things that i can do and then just combining Mm -hmm. them it that's what like my someone's own thing is yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a re- at the end of the day, it's a recipe. And like, you know, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with trying to just use pepper for a day or just use salt for right, a day or totally. something like that. 
Um, but I think the mistake that, that gets made is like people are like, oh, pepper tastes good. Let me just put that on everything. Mm -hmm. Or like I can only use olive oil. And it's like, well, no, there's plenty other. Like sesame oil is pretty good. You know? <laughs> like, right. Um, and, and, you know, I think the more I, I've been telling this advice to a lot of younger students is like, especially if you have the technical skills, you've got some sounds and everything down and you're, you've got a lot of the basics, like don't be afraid to ask yourself the question, like, why am I learning this? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's, it's not always an easy answer, you know, and, and even to this day at age 36, I'm still sometimes catching like, oh, why do I want to do this? You know, like, right. why am I, why am I trying to make, a, I mean, here, dude, here's an open one. I mean, especially for that Twitch, for the Twitch community is like, why am I trying to make a beat on Twitch? And that question, like the answer for me is not entirely clear. And so it makes me pause and really yeah. look at like, okay. Hmm. I did one stream pretty early on that a few people may have been on where I tried to make beats and it was so bad. It was really <laughs> embarrassing. Like, because I don't really like do drums like that anyway. So mm -hmm. I was coming at mm -hmm. it drums first and yeah. uh, I found myself just like, hitting a tom over and over again and like fucking with the sound of it and then yeah. Omari Jazz raided me so then there was like 60 people Killing. who had just watched him like who's a, go he's a monster yeah make all these amazing beats and then it was just me there hitting a drum um <sighs> i don't know where i'm going yeah. with that but that just happened no but I mean, no i but i feel you i mean dude hear, hearing like i mean some of the people like Omari and like and you know Finn and some of these some of these cats. It's just like it's you hear them do it and you see how like easy it, it is. Just looks so easy. Yeah, and and but it, that's it like tricks. when someone watches you play. It's like the same thing. <laughs> I think it just tricks it tricks people into thinking like, oh yeah, now I can do that, and then you don't necessarily catch in all the. Uh, yeah, totally. I definitely you know, thought of beat makers as like, well, that's like not as. <laughs> as hard as like writing a song but actually yeah it's its own thing just a different super thing. hard as well yeah yeah very very yeah it's fucking crazy um well man i i'm i appreciate you doing this um yeah this yeah, is thank you great thank, thank you, you for this being a part thank you for sticking through the uh the middle muckiness and probably what i'll do is fade out the podcast version Always had my unspoken passion Although I might not seem to care All right, everyone, that's our episode. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to share this on all of your social media things so that we can continue to make this happen. I have some great guests in line, and nothing will make these episodes more possible than if you give us great ratings on iTunes, Spotify, etc., all the things, and if you tell all of your friends about it. Also, be sure to stop over at the webpage of our sponsor, Spectrosonics.net, and check their products out, especially their new update to their base software, Trillion. Also, check my Instagram page, at Nicholas T. Semrad, as I just put up a clip of me trying out that new Trillion update over a beat from my good friend and great producer, Devin Hu, and his newest record. I hope you dig it, and I'll see you all next time here at the Grid Kids Podcast. Thank you.